as we were talking about in Sunday school, today many are ending their conversations with a statement like, be safe. So I have two questions for you related to that. Is life safe? And more importantly from this passage, is God safe? This passage is going to begin... Excuse me. This passage is going to begin a story arc that's going to go here from chapter 19 to chapter 40, the beginning of which is the Israelites meeting with God at Mount Sinai, and the end of which is God dwelling with his people in the tabernacle that they have built for him. And so in between, we see a lot of going up and down to the mountain, a lot of going back and forth between Moses and the people, a lot of... uh, of uh, restrictions and laws and regulations and instructions being given. But in this passage, just here in chapter 19, the focus is on this idea that you need to come before your God with care and consecration. Why? Because I would argue for you that God is not safe. It is not safe to come carelessly into the presence of God. Now, I think we see from this passage that God wants people to serve him, that you must serve God. Why? Well, God saves his people to be his possession and to be his priest. The first few verses here, or the first two verses, emphasize they've arrived, they've camped, they're in a particular place. They're near the mountain, but they're not at the mountain. But what is God's purpose in having brought the people of Israel to this point? What's his ongoing purpose for them? I saved you, verse 4, from the Egyptians. Verse 5, obey my voice, keep my covenant, so you will be my own possession. And verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are interesting parallels to this in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through 10 says this, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they are also appointed. But notice verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The beginning of verse 9, I should clarify, when it says chosen race, it's not talking about all of the conversations that are happening in our society today at the moment about idea of racism, that sort of thing. He's basically saying God is picking out this group of people, the Israelites, which were a specific ethnic group, right? And they're his holy people that were supposed to represent him to the world around them. Today, God is not picking out people from one ethnic group, but from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as we see in Revelation 5.9. And in the same way that God wanted Israel to be priests and then represent him to the nations around them, today, God wants the church 
people of many nations to be a gathering, a kingdom, a people of priests in the sense that they are ministering and presenting God to the nation, to the peoples around them. And to put it another way, God is calling out worshipers for himself. God wants you to worship him. God wants you to serve him. And God is, if you have trusted in Jesus, God has made you part of his church and God is using you to call out more people to be a part of what he's doing in the world. And so in the same way that God called the Israelites to represent him to the nations around them, God is calling us today as his church to represent him to the people around us. But it's not just the people and God. God appoints a mediator to go between himself and his people. Look at Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, I will come in a thick cloud so that people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. And then uh, we saw this even in uh, some earlier chapters where it talks about uh, chapter 14, verse 31, when Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. There are a variety of roles that specific men were appointed to fulfill for God's people in the Old Testament. There's the the leader role, which eventually becomes king, right? There's the priest role to go between men and God. And then there is the prophet role to proclaim God's word. In the Old Testament, you have different people fulfilling those different functions, right? There was no one person who was a priest and a king and a prophet. But we come to the New Testament and we have Jesus taking upon himself all of those roles, all of those responsibilities, and in one person, all of those are fulfilled, are carried out, are done exactly the way that God wants them to be. I mention that to say there is some overlap between what Moses is doing and what Aaron will do later here. At first, it's Moses who's the one going between God and the people as the tabernacle is being established. Later on, it's going to be Aaron going between God and the people in the priest role. But there's a transition period. There's an unfolding of all these different things. And and so I just wanted to make that clear. But in the New Testament, we have 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 7.17, for it is attested or spoken of him, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews explains in great detail that Jesus is God's perfect high priest, the last and final and only one we will ever need. And so, to expand what I was talking about in the previous point, that it's God, and then Israel, and then the nations, and then in the New Testament, it's God, and the church, and then the nations. Let's add something else in there. It's God, and then the high priest, and then the priests, and then the nations. And in the New Testament, it's God, Jesus, his people, and the nations. And so, as we see that unfold, we see God's plan becoming more specific. And why was a mediator necessary? Well, we'll talk more about that in a moment as we get into this idea of care and consecration. God desires worshipers, but he is still God. And so that means you must come before God with consecration and care. Well, what what does that mean? Well, these are the things that we see starting in verse 10. You must be consecrated. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their garments. Let them be ready for the third day. 
Verse 14, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Clarification on what's being said here. Washing is not doing laundry, right? This was not for the purpose of having clean clothes. Um, preparation in this passage was not about, uh, maybe you have heard the, the, the somewhat older idea from the 1900s until maybe even more recent times of you're going to wear your Sunday best when you come to church. That's not the point of this passage. Think about the Israelites. They plundered the Egyptians when they left, but it's not like they had a closet and 15 different robes, right? So this is not about... I'm going to pick the nicest robe that I have, and I'm going to put that on. I'm going to take a bath so that I smell nice and clean because I'm going to be with a large group of people. This was a symbolic act of cleansing. They're washing themselves as a picture of preparation and and being ready to come into God's presence. Did that actually cleanse them from sin? I said the point was not some sort of hygienic thing. It was not some sort of... uh, be fresh and clean around other people thing. It's also not the water actually cleanses them from sin. Sometimes people make that same mistake when they look at the Bible in the present day. They see something like baptism and they say, well, baptism is the thing that washes away your sins. The cleansing, the washing with water in the Old Testament and the washing of water in the New Testament do not actually cleanse you of sin. How could it? How could a physical thing like water poured over your body or in some way put upon yourself, how could it actually cleanse you of sin? Sin's not something that's physical, right? And so water can never cleanse us of these things. Instead, it is a picture of the internal cleansing that God does in and among his people. There's also an element of setting apart. So consecration is This thing is being set apart for God's service. We talked last week in our Sunday school hour, Matthew 3. Jesus is baptized. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Part of that is Jesus being set apart for God's service. In Jesus' case, it's not in any way a picture of cleansing of sin because he had no sin that needed to be cleansed. It was a setting apart for service. For us, it is both a picture of God having cleansed us from sin and us being set apart for God's service, right? What does that service then look like? Romans 12, 1 and 2 puts it this way. It says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In the Old Testament, God's people, ceremonial cleansings, Pictures of the work that God was doing within them, preparation for them to serve God in the roles that he had assigned to them. In the New Testament, we have the picture of baptism, which points to the underlying reality of all God's people being joined in a spiritual sense with Christ and all the others that God has called to himself, being set apart for service in which they are not bringing something outside themselves, they are bringing themselves to God as the sacrifice And so, in the New Testament, the sacrifice and the worshiper and the priest and the cleansing, they're all tied very closely together in the sense that we are then connected with Christ. So when it says here, this idea here of consecration, 
we look at it and we're like, well, that was just an Old Testament thing, right? The kings were consecrated or set apart. The priests were consecrated or set apart. There's all these rituals and rites and all these sorts of things. I want you to recognize that what happened here and baptism is not a one-for-one, one, but the ideas are very closely related. They were consecrated to serve God. We, too, if we have believed in Jesus and we've been baptized and all these sorts of things, we belong to his church, we have been consecrated, set apart to serve God. But consecration is not enough. If they washed their bodies and fulfilled the things that God required of them, but then they came into God's presence with a flippant or a careless attitude, that was not enough to keep them safe in God's presence because God is holy. Why is this important? God's coming is a cause for both fear and rejoicing. Look a little bit further in the passage, verse 16. It came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. So there's a transition point in the story. They were camped at the foot of the mountain, near the mountain, and now they're being brought very close to the foot of the mountain. There's this transition, there's this movement in the story. Something else is happening. But what's their response? Their response is that they trembled. They were afraid. Why? Because God's presence is mighty. God's presence is powerful. Look at verses 18 and 19. Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. There are parallels between what we see here and what we will see in the end times when Jesus comes for his people. There will be thunder and lightning and the cloud and the voice and the trumpet call signifying God's presence and God has returned, and God is here. And so the Israelites are down at the foot of the mountain, and they're looking up at the mountain, and they're seeing the greatness of God, and they have a right response, I think, of fear. Now we come to the New Testament, and when we think about God's presence, what do we think about it in, in connection with? We think about it in connection with a passage like 1 Thessalonians 4, that there's going to be a trumpet call, and God's people will be called up into his presence. And for us, that's a a thing of great rejoicing, right? That God's coming is, is bringing joy. But I think we want to be careful that we don't become too imbalanced and focus only on the joy and as a result, forget the proper reverence and an attitude of fear that we ought to have for God, toward God. Not a fear that is, I'm afraid because God is vindictive. I'm afraid because God is unpredictable. I'm afraid because God just wants to see me Harmed, Not that kind of fear, but a, but a reverence and a recognition that even if I can come before God, even if I'm one of God's people, God is still God and God is still mighty and God is still holy. So, what did that look like for the Israelites? It was verse 12, you shall set bounds for the people. Don't go up. Don't touch it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But God's coming is both a cause for rejoicing and for fear. And if we forget one or the other, I think we have an imbalanced perspective of God. God's presence is glorious and dangerous even for his designated servants. And especially for those who are not authorized or who are careless in their coming. 
So when it says, verse 12, don't go up or touch the border of it, whoever touches it shall be put to death, uh, there's this idea of kind of a parallel with what happens later in 2 Samuel 6 with this man named Uzzah. The Ark of the Covenant that the people have built, that's the sign of God's presence with his people, has been captured by a foreign nation, by the Philistines. They're bringing it back from the Philistines. The way they were supposed to carry it was to put two poles through the rings on the side of it and men would carry it. They decided that they were going to put it on a cart. Well, carts bounce around. And it looked like the Ark of the Covenant was going to fall off and be damaged. So this man named Uzzah, who's passing by, puts his hand out and touches the Ark of the Covenant so it doesn't fall off the cart. That strikes him dead. And we look at a passage like that and we say, how harsh, how, how could God do a thing like that? When we set that passage against the backdrop of this passage, God in this passage and also in that one is emphasizing his holiness, his purity, something, someone who is sinful can't just come up and, and touch something that is holy. Someone, as it says later in the passage in verse 21, Moses, God said to Moses, go down warn the people so they do not break through to the Lord to gaze. And many of them perish. How many of us are curious? We're all curious, right? We want to know what's going on. We want to see things. Moses is basically, God is basically telling Moses, you can't come before God and treat the coming of God like an exhibit at the zoo, looking through the glass at the lizard or the snake or the animal or whatever else. I'm just watching. I'm just staring. I'm just curious about this. Maybe I'm amused by it. Maybe I think it's fascinating. Maybe I feel a sense of, of fear because this thing is poisonous or it's strong and powerful, but I've got this wall between us, so it's okay. I can just sort of come up here and look. There's this idea here that God's people, even though they are God's people, and even the priests, for example, verse 24, don't let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord or he will break forth upon them. There's this separation, there's this barrier between the people and even the priests and God. Who's the only one who can go up and down on the mountain at this point until God gives them permission? It's Moses. As their mediator, as their representative, the one that God has appointed for them. Which then leads us to this next idea. God's presence is made accessible through his mediator. But before we get to that, let me ask you this question. Do you treat God as an interesting exhibit? C.S. Lewis described God this way in his extended allegory. Uh, in, in his book, he represents God in the person of a lion. And there's this whole discussion about, is he safe? And the response that Lewis puts into that little segment of the story is this. He's not a tame lion. For us, in many of our churches today, God is a tame lion. He's my buddy. He's my friend. This guy I hang out with. He's the man upstairs. We, we treat God with these terms of endearment and triviality. Look at the mountain. People, mountain, line. They couldn't cross that line. If they crossed the line, what was going to happen? He shall be stoned or shot through. The first five or ten times I read this passage, I was like, that's interesting that it would say that God's going to stone them or shoot them through with, like with an arrow or a spear. That wasn't what God wasn't going to do it. 
the Israelites were going to have to do that. They were going to have to put to death anyone who carelessly and thoughtlessly just said, I'm going to run up on the mountain so I can be curious and see God's presence. Now, we know from other places, even later in this book, that God's presence is so glorious and so amazing and so awesome that even the very sight of it would have overwhelmed them. But even if they had not reached the point where they saw the greatness of God's glory and it consumed them, even if they just crossed that line, God said that they were to be put to death for their lack of reverence and care for God. God's presence is made accessible, though, through his mediator. When I was first writing this, I wrote the word safe, and then I crossed it out because I think we still can't say made safe through his mediator, but made accessible through his mediator. Why do I say that? Well, we see all this back and forth throughout this passage. Verse 3, Moses went up to God. And then verse 7, Moses came down and called the elders of the people. Verse 8, the people answered, said, all God said we will do. Verse 8, Moses goes back and brings the word of the people to the Lord. God talks to Moses. God says, says to Moses again, verse 14, Moses went down and obeys what God has said. There's this back and forth. Did God need the back and forth because he didn't know what was happening or because... He needed Moses to go between because he couldn't go from this place to that place. No. What God is doing is setting up in the people's minds this idea of a mediator, someone to go between men and God. Like I said earlier, in the Old Testament, in this case, that mediator is Moses. Later, it will be Aaron. In the New Testament, that mediator is Jesus Christ, the perfect one who goes between men and God. There's an interesting section in the next chapter. And I just want to read that for you. Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Why was God revealing himself in his gloriousness? Why was he setting these boundaries? You've heard the expression, I'm sure, at some point or another to put the fear of God into someone. We tend to put that in a very like shallow way. This person is afraid of this other person because they have some measure of, of power in terms of position over them. What ought, what ought to happen from this passage is that God, the fear of God would be put into us because we see the greatness of God, we see the holiness and the separation that's going on here, and we would cry out for a mediator even as the people did and turn to Moses. Who's our mediator? Hebrews 10 says this, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, That's what we were singing about in that last song right before the message. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean. There's a measure of consecration from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we read a passage like that and we're like, great, no more lying, boldly come. There is still 
a measure even for us today in which we should not thoughtlessly or carelessly come before God to receive or rather to remember his covenant. What does that look like for us? Probably the most visible representation for us would be the Lord's table when we remember the body and blood of Christ shed and broken for us as payment for our sin. What does 1 Corinthians 11 say about that? 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 30. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There's preparation. There's care. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep or died. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. So the question I would ask us is this. We're not going to meet God at Mount Sinai. But we do come to remember God and to commemorate this new covenant in his blood every time we observe the Lord's table, like we'll do next week on the first Sunday of the month. When we come to that, just as the people are coming to receive God's covenant, when I say to receive God's covenant, 19 verse 5, Exodus 19:5, If you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession, for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God was giving them a covenant, and there was associated with it reverence and awe and consecration and care in coming into God's presence. For us, when we remember Christ's death until he comes at the Lord's table, when we sing praise to God or approach him with prayer, yes, Hebrews 10, there is confidence and boldness to come before God because Jesus Christ has opened the way. As we sing about in the song, there was this veil in the temple separating men and God. Here in Exodus 19, there's these boundaries around the mountains, around the mountain that kept the people away from God. Through Jesus Christ, we have access in a way that the people of Israel did not, at least at this point in their history, but that is not a reason for us to come carelessly or thoughtlessly before God. We shouldn't let boldness become brashness or, or, or confidence become carelessness because at that point, we have failed to recognize that God is great and God is holy and we are still creatures of God, we are still not yet made holy ourselves. And so if we come to God and we're like, just looking, because we're curious, if we come to God and we're like, well, I'm going to come up with my own way to do this thing, like what happened in the story of Uzzah, if we come before God and we just sing songs without thinking, thinking the words and we pray just saying the same things over and over and we act as though God doesn't care about any of that, then to some degree or another, we are acting like the Israelites who disrespected God's boundaries and failed to see his greatness. And we don't want to say physical sickness or physical death are the result of sin. Like we, we feel uncomfortable saying that. And I think we should be hesitant to say that toward other people. But if I come flippantly into God's presence, if I come to his table and there's sin in my heart that I haven't dealt with, and there's sin in my life, and I come before him, I say, everything's fine, everything's right. My outward cleansing, baptism, 
versus the pattern of my life, sin, and all these other things that are going on. God can and does sometimes judge people with sickness or even with death when they take lightly things that are holy, even himself. And so again, there's this, there's this joy mixed with reverence. There's this relationship, but a, a righteous fear of God. And so often we've lost that balance. We come to the extreme over here, and we say, well, God is holy. It's going to be very somber and, and serious and, and no joy. But far more often in our day, we're not like the Puritans, right? Where everything is very formal and very serious and very sober. In many of the churches that we're familiar with, we're over here. We're having a good time. We're treating God as though he's our equal instead of still being God. Both ignore the proper biblical balance. Both are dangerous. But probably the one that we need to be a little bit more careful of is this one over here, because this is where we tend to be at in American churches today. And yes, empty ritual is a problem. Formalism is a problem because if there's no heart change, you don't know God, you're not one of his people, that's disastrous as well. But if you think that you can treat God like your buddy and not have proper reverence and not have proper fear, that's dangerous too. Why is this important? The passage in Hebrews doesn't stop with verse 25 where it talks about encouraging one another and having come into God's presence boldly. It says in Hebrews 10.26, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And people argue about whether this means that you can lose your salvation. I would say no. But I would say this. What does it mean to know God? It's not just I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. It's not just I do religious things like pray prayers, give to the poor, be a nice person, etc., 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 show up to church services, whatever else it might be, fill in the blank with religious activities. Do you actually know God? If we know God, we will not have our lives characterized by sinfulness. We will not come before him carelessly. We will not think that we can claim God's promises, but keep living the way, however we want to live, every day of our lives, but say, yeah, but I'm still going to go to heaven. That's not how Christianity works. That's how some people have represented it in the past hundred years, but that's not how Christianity works. God says, if you're going to be my people, going back to the beginning of Exodus 19, you've got to obey what I say. You can't say, I want all the blessings, but I'm going to do whatever I want. If you want the blessings, there has to be obedience. There can't be obedience without God's power. You can't have God's power without coming to, G coming to God through the proper mediator in the Old Testament, the people approached God through Moses. It, now, we approach God through Jesus Christ. And obviously, Moses was just a picture of Jesus who was coming. 
So do you come before God with consecration and care? The starting point is believing in Jesus whom God has sent instead of any other thing that might be a hope on which you rest your confidence that when you die you'll be in God's presence. If you think you will be with God for any reason other than Jesus and what he has done and my unswerving hope and confidence in that alone, you have a false hope. God will not let you in because you're nice to people. God will not let you in because you've been faithful, fulfilling your duties in whatever role that is. God will not let you in for any of those things. You can only come into God's presence in God's way, reverently, carefully, through Jesus. Is that how you and I are approaching God today? You ought to worship God in doing so. Come before him with consecration and with care. Let's pray. Dear God, as we have looked at this passage, we pray that you would help us to focus on the sobering realities of what we see here. Sometimes we look at a passage like this and we say, well, yeah, that was the Israelites, that was centuries, even thousands of years ago. Of course, God was that way then, but he's different now. But Lord, you're not different now. You don't call us to punish people who come before you irreverently in the context of the church, but that doesn't mean that you cannot carry out judgment yourself if we do so, if others do so. Certainly we have a greater awareness of the access that we have to you through Jesus Christ, and we ought to rejoice in that, but even so, that should not cause us to be careless. Lord, may all who are in this room today know you through Jesus Christ. May we come before you boldly, but may we come before you as your people, obedient to your requirements, reverent of your holiness, seeing that you are God and have been God and will be God, and we are not. May that sober us. May that stir our hearts. May it cause us to recognize the dangers of sin and to put them off. Lord, we pray that you would work in us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.